What's going on, y'all? Welcome to another episode of Black Diplomats, the go-to destination for weekly commentary, news, and information on all things international and told from a black perspective. As always, I'm your host, Terrell Jermaine Starr. I'm in Ukraine in the Carpathian Mountains, far away, thousands of miles away from the noise of Brooklyn, New York. I'm here working on my memoir, which I hope I'll have halfway done by the time I leave Ukraine in October. Hopefully, I should, but you know, hopefully. I've been trying my best to enjoy my vacation and much of that involves ignoring U.S. politics, which is my full-time job at The Root. But I think this week's Democratic National Convention requires me to discuss Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, our Democratic nominees for the presidency and vice presidency of the United States, and why I think their victory is essential for us to continue to fight for a progressive foreign policy that will benefit Americans at home and everyone else around the world, but especially here at home, black folk and around the world, black folks. So in this episode, I'm going to give you my opinions on climate change, defense spending, the Iran deal and Russia. All these are international affairs issues, and they tie directly to the Democratic National Convention and the consequences of a Kamala Harris vice presidency and a Joe Biden presidency, a Joe Biden, Kamala Harris White House, and why, quite frankly, I hope that they win. And, you know, when I when I talk about this, I know a lot of folks who listen to me, people will think, OK, well, these are not the people who I supported and I supported this individual. Or I supported that individual. And I think that's fine. But in politics, we don't always get what we want. It's really about, well, I mean, everything that we want. I, I look at it more as who are the people with whom we can negotiate and get some of the things that we want and push forward and push forward and push forward. The way that I look at black liberation from an international context is, yes, I think about the domestic issues, healthcare, the economy, stupid, all these other things. But as somebody who focuses on foreign affairs and somebody who has experience looking at budgets, we can't talk about black liberation at home and abroad without thinking about foreign policy, because namely through spending and the defense budget, which does nothing more than to finance the military industrial complex, which allows America to maintain empire we can't we, we have to talk about foreign policy right and that's why i feel i felt today that i had to talk about kamala harris and joe biden particularly so usually i'm interviewing folks but today's podcast is going to be all of me so let's get right into it so let's start with defense spending so one of the national or I'll say one of the highlights of our national uprisings resulting from police officers killing black folks is the call for defunding police departments around the nation. The language around defunding police is evolving 
and different folks have a different idea of what it means and how it will work in practice. But the general consensus is that taking some of the money allocated to cops and placing it in social service programs is a truly effective way to address crime, not invest money in more police, even as crime rates remain at the same level or in some cases crime is increasing even though more money is put into police departments when i think about the defund the police movement which i definitely support it's hard for me to think about this as somebody who used to be a defense writer for a short period of time and my time devoted to budgets it's hard for me to think about the defund the police movement without thinking about defunding the pentagon so let's just even deal with that language right so one of the observations that i've made about the language of defunding the police is that a lot of people presume that when you say defund the police it means you're taking away police and when we have these conversations, particularly those who operate within these intellectual spaces, those who are on Twitter all the time and on our social media platforms, we have to assume that the vast majority of people who are are voting, especially the grandmas out there, the Berthas and the Odell Joneses at the local church, the old folks are not on Twitter having these highbrow pink champagne conversations with us going through the nuances of what this language means. People, <laughs> you know, people are basically going to be thinking about this as, oh, you want to defund the police? Well, I'm already struggling with crime in my community. So you mean you want to take more resources from the only two, the only institution I know that can protect me? Now, I understand there's a lot in that, right? So, I understand that, yes, intellectually, we can look at numbers and data that points correctly to the fact that police officers are not spending all their time running around chasing criminals and making us safe. We, we know that's not true, but that's not how the average human being is thinking about it. Because the thing about being a an intellectual, somebody who thinks, is that we have time to think. <laughs> and I know this may annoy people, but that's just the truth. I am in Ukraine right now on a book leave that's lasting close to two months. I'm writing my memoir, okay? And I'm thinking about reimagining how policing works. I have the bandwidth to think about this stuff. I'm a journalist. My full-time job is to read. So when we talk about defunding, even though I support it, I have no problem with the language. I just want to respect the fact that people who are outside of our intellectual space don't. So if you take anything from what I'm saying before I go into the defense budget, my, my talking points, understand that when we hear defund the police, I just want us to have a built-in sensitivity to the idea that people are not going to understand the integrity of what that means. 
and that we should explore how we can further explain what defund the police movement is, work with the language if need be. I don't have a problem with the language, but it's more about how do we project this onto the masses of the people who we want to help. But for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to talk about defunding the Pentagon because the Pentagon needs to be defunded. So according to a recent article uh, from the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, Defense and International Security Assistance accounts for 16% of the budget or $697 billion out of a $4.4 trillion total 2019 budget, right? So that's the budget, the money that we spend every year running the country. So a lot of that goes, you know, that the other parts go to Social Security, etc. right? But 16% of the 2019 budget, 697 billion went to defense. And I, I quote, the bulk of the spending in this category reflects the underlying cost of the defense department. The total also includes the cost of supporting operations in Afghanistan, right? And other related activities described as Overseas contingency operations for the budget, funding for which totals $77 billion in 2019, according, again, to the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. So also keep in mind that the Pentagon has a long history of wasting money. According to a 2016 Washington Post article, an internal study proposed by the Department of Defense, it proposed cutting... 125 billion in administrative waste. Okay. 125 billion in administrative waste. That's how much the internal study proposed cutting. And the thing about this <laughs> internal study was that the officials in the Pentagon, they tried to prevent this budget from not making the light of day, but the Washington Post got it. But, of course, the proposal was eventually nixed over concerns that the White House and Congress would propose even further cuts if it became public. Imagine that. So, the, why am I talking about the defense budget? So, the defense budget, that's how we maintain empire. And the way that our military outlook functions and our defense budget functions is that we would rather fight wars abroad than fight them at home. And so there, there's a lot of conversation. That's a, a whole nother conversation about wars and the ridiculousness of them and cutting back on them. I, I think that deserves its own episode, which I'll eventually do. But the thing about defense and our outlook is the American outlook is that we have rather fight them abroad than at home. So when you think about these carriers, right, you think about these, uh, these aircraft carriers that cost, you know, they, they start off with $4 billion and they balloon up to 8 billion. And so you need defense contractors to build these things, right? So much of the military hardware that we're getting our guns, all these things, they're not made in-house. So you are paying billions of dollars every year 
to businesses that produce these, you know, F-16s, our fire jets and uh, submarines, all these things, right? So there is an industry within America that depends on these bloated budgets. And so one of the things that really shocked me when I was a military writer at Foxtrot Alpha under uh, Jalopnik was that many times, let's, let's just say, for example, an aircraft carrier. The proposed budget for it would be $4 billion, but there would be a delay and another delay and another delay. And that normally results in a billion and another billion and another billion, right? So you have these very undisciplined budgets that people really don't talk about nationally, right? And so the thing about defense spending is that it's not something that people commonly talk about around their dinner tables, right? So yes, we, we could talk about defund the police because we deal with the police every day, right? So we see police cars, they issue tickets, and when we go to court, sometimes the cop shows up and sometimes they don't. And so we're used to seeing a police officer's uniform. We're not used to seeing a somebody from the military. And we're not used to them being accountable to us because, quite frankly, they don't really have to. And it's also because much of the accountability deals with Congress. And here's another conversation. When we think about, and I'll kind of get into this, there's a big lobby from the defense world, the private defense world, that puts money in politicians' pockets. Let's get into that. So, we know that 16% of the 2019 budget was allocated towards defense. And we also know that the Pentagon has a long history of overspending. So that's why our congressional leaders just a month or so ago, over the past few months, uh, namely Senator Bernie Sanders and U.S. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, proposed this year to amend the National Defense Authorization Act, which proposed the budget for the Department of Defense for the upcoming year by cutting 10% from the $740 billion budget that's proposed and ultimately passed. So that 10% cut amounts to $74 billion. Now that money that 74 billion will be allocated for social programs which is a similar call that activists are making about the reallocating of monies from local police budgets so you have people in congress right who are taking this defunding the police language but they're adjusting it for the pentagon same concept, just a different budget from a different pool of money, a much bigger pool of money. So here's the thing. Uh, the amendment failed in both the House and the Senate. Now, here's the good news. According to the nation, uh, 92 House members and 23 senators voted for the 10% cut within this amendment. 
Uh, and that's a sign that there is an appropriate appetite for cutting the defense budget. One of the people who voted against that amendment was Senator Kamala Harris, who is our current uh, Democratic VP nominee. So let's go to what she said about why she did not support it. So here's a statement that she released uh, about the cut, about not supporting the cut. And I believe this is July the 22nd. And I quote, in part, I applaud Senator Sanders and I am grateful for all the work that he's done on this amendment. I unequivocally agree with the goal of reducing the defense budget and redirecting the funding to communities in need, but it must be done strategically. I remain supportive of the effort and I am hopeful that with the benefit of additional time, future efforts will more specifically address these complicated issues and earn my enthusiastic support. Congress must finally make smart investments in American communities during this crisis. People across the country are hurting. Parents can't find work. Kids can't go to school and sick people can't afford the health care they need. Now more than ever, we must find ways to reinvest in families and communities, which is why I have introduced the monthly Economic Crisis Support Act with Senator Sanders and the Saving Our Street Act with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, Congress has a responsibility to do more and much more. So I'm going to give you my thoughts on this. I think that this election, when we think about conversations around universal health care, when we have conversations about universal health care, when we talk about okay, we need to reallocate funds and reprioritize our budget. We, one, need to get out there and vote. And I understand there are people who, for a wide range of reasons, are not excited about this particular ticket. But here's the thing. If we want to remotely come close to getting universal health care or let's take for example Senator Kamala Harris she's been the most outspoken person in Congress when it comes to introducing bills and policies that support black women who are giving you know who are dying during childbirth right and reproductive health Taking some of this money from the Pentagon will help to address those issues. And when we think about climate change, when we think about infrastructure, taking some of the money that we're putting in the Pentagon is definitely going to help. Now, 10% is not a whole lot, but you can do a whole lot with $74 billion. Like a whole, whole lot. And... I think we also need to reimagine what we think about safety. What does it mean to be secure? We think about that at the local level, but I think at the international level, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about is America really safe with a budget that is bigger than the next seven to 11 countries' defense budgets 
combined. And I'm saying 7 to 11% because the numbers vary. But generally speaking, the number that's thrown around is seven. the next seven countries, namely China and Russia and several European countries. So seven leading countries in the world as far as being military powers. Our budget and defense spending is much bigger than theirs. Combined. So... Just like I was talking to y'all earlier about when people say, oh, if you're cutting money from the police, that means that you're taking police officers away from me. That will stop the the, the quote unquote, the quote unquote thugs from robbing me. I think a lot of people think that when you say defund the Pentagon, oh, we're going to have Russian tanks in Times Square, right? People's minds go to that. And. I think it's important for us to consider these fears because that's how budgets, particularly with defense and particularly with policing, are developed and why they continue to succeed. Because it's all predicated on this notion that I'm going to scare you into accepting the fact that I'm going to give you this bloated budget that really is not going to address your safety, but it will address your fears. Do you understand the difference that I just said? So there's a difference between addressing your safety versus addressing your fears. When I address your safety, let's start with something that everyone understands. We talk about local policing. There's a recent New York Times article that outlines how Police officers spend most of their time in some of our major cities. And much of that time is spent writing traffic tickets and responding to nonviolent crimes. And only a small percentage of a lot of police departments' time is devoted to chasing serious criminals, people who are really a threat to your safety. Also, what we don't talk about are systems. The thing about policing, and I want to get into defense, is that we don't talk about why crime exists. Just like in defense, we don't talk about, let's just say something, let's go to an easy one, terrorism. We talk about protecting America from terrorism, but we don't talk about why terrorists actually want to kill us. You know? <laughs> so with just say my hometown of Detroit and it's not that far from Chicago it's like okay Detroit at one point it, it, it was one of the leading quote unquote crime capitals of the world we don't talk about the racist urban policy that 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 creates poverty which turns into crime you have to have a degree of intellect and emotional patience to really walk a citizenry in, in a voting populace through that. Because once you deal with the symptoms, I'm not talking about the, the surface stuff. I'm talking about dealing with the health about a community. Once you deal with the racism that impacts why a community is poor, like Chicago, right? Everyone loves talking about Chicago, but nobody care about Chicago. 
It's not because the people there have a pathology problem. Chicago has one of the strictest gun, some of the strictest gun laws in the country. People are still shooting each other. It's not because the black people have a pathology problem. The reason being is that there are too many damn guns that are allowed to freely flow to Chicago. It's not because black folk have a pathology problem. And Chicago Police Department is one of the largest police departments in the country. Crime is there. And there are decades of racist policing that we can date back to the migrations up north and how black folk were segregated once they entered to the city and it can go before that even. So that's a whole nother conversation. But when we talk about safety, we have to deal with those issues. And my whole point is that if you're dealing with social services, if you're dealing with job creation and you're dealing with restorative justice and those types of programs that empower communities to empower themselves, then you're not going to need to put police officers in these communities who are untrained, who are undisciplined and who are pretty much sanctioned to kill at will. Same thing with defense. If we want to cut the defense budget, which I'm all for, we need to have a larger conversation about American empire. Because this whole notion of maintaining empire abroad, that's not a financially sustainable way for a healthy country to exist. It just isn't. Okay. It just isn't. So. We also have to keep in mind that if we are the country. That has a defense budget that dwarfs. The next seven other leading nations in the world in defense spending. We're going to lose out someplace. People are sick. Think about COVID-19. Think about the fact that you have all these people who are dying. Could you imagine if a country in Africa were to have the same type of response as we have? We would have all types of stereotypical stories and news reports about them. All kinds. But it's not happening because American exceptionalism within American media. That's why. So if we want to think about reigning in our defense budget, we have to rein in American empire. And I don't think that's a conversation that most politicians are ready to have. Yeah, America, from an imperial standpoint, is the greatest countries in the world. In existence, from an imperialist perspective. But imperialism is literally killing us at home. Because we don't have enough resources to take care of our people. 
So what do you want? Do you want this dominant empire where we have a military and we're constantly fighting wars that we shouldn't be fighting abroad? Or do you want healthcare? Now, a lot of people are going to say, oh, you're making a choice between American safety and security and health and we can have both. Well, you know what? I think that's true to an extent, but it requires context. I think I would agree with that if we are willing to have a new paradigm shift and a new paradigm, a, a paradigm shift in which we don't think about security as solely being done through the barrel of a gun. And I think that's what most people in Congress believe. And I know this because I interview these people for a living. And most people can't think about security without violence or the threat of violence. And most people in Congress are not willing to have that conversation because a lot of these defense firms that build the destroyers and the submarines and the fighter jets are donating to these people's campaigns. And what's interesting, an interesting parallel between people who are pro-defense spending and pro-police spending is that they, they lack the imagination and creativity to build economies beyond jobs that prepare people to kill, right? So I'll end this part of my defense segment by saying, if we want to have more people in Congress who would vote for a 10% cut, we need to vote in progressive people. Which is why I have no problem with congressmen and women being primary because it's not just enough that a person is a Democrat. You need people who will vote for cuts to our defense system people who are vote for defunding police that needs to be done at the voting booth so until we expand our language to include defunding the pentagon i don't think we're really going to have the resources to invest in these social service programs. Now, again, I'm not, this is saying nothing about defunding the police. We need that. I'm just, my whole argument is we need to and we need to add the Pentagon to it because that's where all the money is. So save the New York police department's annual budget, $6 billion, right? So think about 125 million that was proposed uh, and cuts by that internal study from the Department of Defense. So that's basically, you know, you put in six, you do the math. It's like that's 20 plus New York Police Department budgets within $125 billion, right? That's like 20 plus budgets. So think about just that cut alone in administrative waste and where what type of social service programs that money could be put into. And my point is, 
even though Senator Harris voted against that amendment, she said that she was open to voting for something like that in the future. And someone like Joe Biden, could you see that? Yeah, sure, of course. So I would rather negotiate with them than to negotiate with Donald Trump who or any other Republicans because they're definitely not going for that shit. Just a thought. So yes, this election is consequential. Definitely consider that as you're thinking about your choice to vote. So let's talk about climate change and particularly the Paris Agreement. So that's a global agreement uh, to fight climate change, basically, as as it literally says. So um, as you know, the United States ranks number one, I'm sorry, number two in the world in emitting greenhouse gases, according to the Union of Concerned Scientists. Former President Barack Obama entered into the agreement via executive order during the tail end of his administration because the then GOP-controlled Congress likely would not have ratified it had he sent it to them for approval. So he did through executive order. Again, that goes back to the power of the presidency. So he was like, okay, uh, Republicans ain't going to do it. We're gonna, just going to do this shit through executive order. Elections are consequential. See, a Joe Biden presidency, he wouldn't have pulled out this, this, this peace agreement. So that's why this is important. Because when Trump became president, he pulled out of the agreement. So for a lot of people who don't know, climate change impacts sea levels, which impact many of our coastal cities here in America, especially cities where people of color live. So think about South Carolina, think about Florida, think about all of our local areas uh, around the country, Louisiana, Alabama, where black folk live, Mississippi. Climate change, you know, rising sea levels, that that impacts us, right? Um, and so another fact that you all should know is that Africa is disproportionately, the continent of Africa is disproportionately impacted by climate change, even though the continent produces the least amount of emissions overall in most nations, including America. And so the numbers vary, but they emit about two to three percent of gas house emissions as a continent. <laughs> Check that out as a continent. So I think that the uh, like a Biden and a Biden Harris White House will put the U.S. back on track to join the Paris Agreement so that we could possibly save ourselves from dying. So, you know, I think that. When we think about climate change, it, it, you know, climate change is something like. I look at it as. Going to the doctor every few months or twice a year, like doing your checkups versus the emergency room. People only care about climate. People are, are only going to care about climate change until our ankles are 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 we're up to our ankles in water from the pacific ocean if we're on our coastal areas or what have you it's only when the most extreme situations happen happen where we're going to care and the continent of africa is going to hit it most because for a wide range of reasons and again this is a, another episode of its own 
But the thing about climate change, one of the main things that impacts is the uh, crops and, and growth, right? So if people can't grow food, which is a fear on the continent of Africa as a result of climate change, more specifically drought, there are a number of studies that point to the fact that what's going to happen is that you're going to have vigilante groups that are going to be hunting for food and killing people for food because there won't be any to grow. So what's unfortunate is that in the most extreme ways, and I say extreme in regards to violence, you know, a lot of the countries like America and European nations, like we're not going to see that. It's on the continent of Africa because continent of Africa, they don't have the development that the U.S. does in other nations. So all I'm saying is that climate change is one of those issues where we need to take it seriously and we need to look at it more from, and we're, we're already in the emergency room. Right. In that regard. And if we do not change course on climate change. And so we're, we're going to have problems. So one of the major ways through which. Greenhouse gases are emitted, you know, CO2 levels in the atmosphere is. Through the production of coal. You know, that industry that's dying, but Donald Trump refuses to create an alternative for. Yeah, those type of things. So, coal is a dying field. Coal is contributing to climate change. Now, I think the number one question you need to be asking ourselves is what type of new energies can we create right that's what I that's that's what we need to start asking ourselves and as opposed to saying oh we're going to take these jobs away the thing is oh we're going to provide opportunities for you to develop a new skill so that we can develop energy that won't kill us I mean, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm just laughing like because it's just so simple. And that requires, what that means is that requires businesses that are emitting these gases to stop. That normally happens under Democratic administrations. I know Obama tried in many ways. So, that's just those are just my thoughts on climate change and the Green New Deal addresses all of these things, which is about creating jobs that will create renewable energies that don't hurt the environment. And a Joe Biden presidency will will prove. I think as a more likely administration to address these issues than another four years of Donald Trump. 
All right, so finally, let's kind of get down to the uh, DNC platform, right? And Democratic National Convention platform is pretty robust. But I'm going to talk about some things that are really interesting to me. Let's start with Russia, which is my field. So here's something in the platform that I like, and that's going towards the end of the platform. And so it's, you know, says, and, and this is from the platform. I'm reading from this. Russia is engaging in destabilizing actions along its borders, violating Ukraine's sovereignty, uh, sovereignty and attempting to recreate spheres of influence that undermine American interests. Okay, that's imperialism, a whole other thing, but let me keep reading. It's also propping up the Assad regime in Syria, which is brutally attacking his own citizens. Donald Trump would overturn more than 50 years of American foreign policy by abandoning NATO partners, uh, countries who help us fight terrorism every day and embracing Russian President Vladimir Putin instead. And so we believe in strong alliances and we'll deter Russian aggression, build European resilience and protect our NATO allies. And so we'll make clear to Putin that we are prepared to cooperate with him when it's in our interest as we did on reducing nuclear stockpiles, ensuring Iran could not obtain a nuclear weapon, sanctioning North Korea and resupplying our troops in, the, in Afghanistan. But we will not hesitate to stand up to Russian aggression. We will also continue to stand by the Russian people and push the government to respect the fundamental rights of its citizens. Okay, so here's the thing that I think is important. The imperialist aspect aside about um, undermining American interests because listen, I think Russia and America are peers in regards to imperialism and being aggressors. And I've spoken about that before in the podcast, but here's, here's the thing about a Biden presidency that I think would be different. You're going to have somebody who is going to protect our elections, at least through the disinformation realm. Now, do I think that Russian interference, which I believe happened, was so consequential that it flipped the election for Trump? I don't believe that. Do I believe the interference happened? Yeah, I do. But at least you're going to have a president that's not going to encourage the Kremlin to hack Hillary Clinton's emails. So even though I don't think that the Kremlin was influential in getting all these white people to vote for Trump, which is ultimately what happened. And I don't think you need the Kremlin to do that. I just think you need a whole bunch of racist people who are already racist before the, the Kremlin decided to do it in the first place to vote for a racist but I think the power of having somebody like Biden in office is that you know that if you try something like that there are going to be consequences because what we don't want happening is that we don't want other nations to feel encouraged and empowered to try more things to interrupt our elections because the disinformation campaign may not have flipped it as I would argue, or it wouldn't, you know, but what we don't want is a situation where nations will become so emboldened that they will do something that does disproportionately impact the ways in which our elections are conducted. That's my point. Like, I don't want anything to happen whereby okay, Russia tried something. It's like, okay, now that, that was impactful. And I think that strong 
leadership that protects the integrity of your country and the world matters. Now, again, much of this operates within the paradigm of imperialism and it's okay as us versus you. I get that. And that's problematic language if we're thinking about a decolonizing conversation. So for those who have those thoughts, I'm with you. But I'm just saying what's also important is that you don't want a president who's a punk. And Donald Trump is a punk. And what that means is the rest of the world, those who, if we're using the language adversarial to American interests, which means we don't care about your democratic process, we just want to cause chaos. Yeah, that, that will encourage other nations that adversarial ad, adversarial to America to punk our systems. That's what I mean. And I want to get to another point too, right? In the in the platform, which I think is important, non-proliferation of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons. So I'm going to read some of the passages from this platform. So Democrats are committed to preventing the spread of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons and to eventually ridding the planet of these catastrophic weapons. We believe America will be safer in a world with fewer weapons of mass destruction. Donald Trump encourages the spread of nuclear weapons across Asia and the Middle East, which would weaken the treaty on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. And he is unwilling to rule out using nuclear weapons against ISIS. Democrats want to reduce the number of nuclear, chemical and biological weapons around the world, as well as their means of delivery while retaining a strong deterrent as long as others maintain nuclear strike capabilities. We will strengthen the NPT, push for ratification of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, and stop the spread of loose nuclear material. Democrats will be informed by a new nuclear posture review in determining continued ways to appropriately shape our nuclear deterrent with the aim of reducing our reliance on nuclear weapons while meeting our national security obligations. Democrats will also seek new opportunities for further arms control and avoid taking steps that create incentives for the expansion of existing nuclear weapons programs. To this end, we'll work to reduce excessive spending on nuclear weapons-related programs that are projected to cost $1 trillion over the next 30 years. Okay, so this is the part that's important. So let's go back to that last line. To this end, we will work to reduce excessive spending on nuclear weapons related programs that are projected to cost one trillion over the next 30 years. So let me give you a brief primer about that. So basically, um, our nuclear weapons program is being modernized, right? And what there's a difference between expansion and modernization. And so Obama approved the $1 trillion modernization program. And so what modernization means is that we're not going to expand a nuclear stockpile. So for, for people who don't know, America and, and Russia hold 90% of the world's nuclear stockpile. And there are roughly around 14,000 nuclear weapons available, you know, warheads, etc. Um, and those are the numbers that are publicly available to us. Russia holds 90% of that nuclear stockpile. And in order to maintain the stockpile that we have, which is roughly around 7,000, you know, 6,800 weapons, 
is that they need to be modernized, which is we need to update them. So it's like a tune-up. Just think about your car. And, you know, you go get the oil change and you need to get your motor change in order for your car to work. The nuclear weapons operate the same way, even though we haven't used any. Okay, of course, we have World War II, but uh, current stockpile, we haven't used them. So modernization means that we will, when you think about the delivery systems, that means the submarines, that means your Ohio class, that means your Virginia class, you know, like submarines. So all these submarines, they're going to be built like the same ones, replace the old ones so that they will be able to uh, be ready to launch from the sea, the air, or land, right? So um, in this platform, it says Democrats will work to reduce excessive spending on nuclear weapons. So that's the money that's allocated. It doesn't necessarily mean that the money will be spent in total. So if we can get that $1 trillion cut in any way, that is progress. A presidency that with Biden at the helm, at least for four years at least, will be a good start to lobbying and advocating for not only a reduction in this $1 trillion that was approved, but also for retiring weapons in the stockpile. And so the thing about the Obama presidency was that there weren't a lot of nuclear uh, weapons that were, um, you know, that were disarmed during his presidency and it wasn't his fault it was because Putin didn't want to play ball and so the way that this works with nuclear disarmament is that particularly between Russia and America is that both parties want to play ball they have to play ball and so you saw you know George Bush then Bill Clinton and then you know George the second George Bush thousands of weapons were retired because both parties wanted to play ball so there's a difference between Reagan's, for example, dealing with a Mikhail Gorbachev than Obama dealing with a Putin night and day. So I think what I'm saying is that it's really important for us to think about nuclear weapons and the money that it costs to maintain and build them and think with Democrats in office, we can at least have people who are reasonable to have conversations about what it would mean to reduce the stockpile or in my argument I think that we can cut the land based um, arm of our of our triad so we can reduce spending on nuclear weapons because that, honestly You don't need 14,000 weapons to destroy the world. You just don't. There's a study done that showed that uh, a, a regional war between India and Pakistan would cause a nuclear winter. Pakistan and India, they have roughly 300, 400 weapons between them. Russia and America have thousands. So at one so so at one point it, it just becomes a dick swinging contest. Another thing is the Iran deal. Uh, 
I think that with a Hillary Clinton presidency, we would still be in the Iran deal. The Iran deal was a great deal. The whole plan of the Iran deal, that whole document is 159 pages. And in the notes section, I'm going to link to it so you can read it. Because that's the whole thing. We actually need to read this stuff. And you may not be able to read the whole thing. But you can at least go and read some explainers. I'll put some some links for explainers because a lot of people are not going to have time to read 159 pages. But the whole thing is that we don't want Iran to create a nuclear weapon. Now was Obama's whole point. So the whole thing about this convention, what it means for me is that this Democratic National Convention is from a foreign policy standpoint, if we can lobby and, and and mobilize activism around foreign policy, particularly defense spending, and reimagine what it means to be a powerful world leader without the threat of violence or the use of violence, that's where we can get a whole bunch of this money from, y'all. We can get a whole bunch of this money from the Pentagon, from the nuclear weapons program and reallocate it to diplomacy and language study and things that really create a peaceful world because we can make sure that we're able to defend ourselves and be a powerful country without the threat of violence. And I do believe that America can be great without empire. I really do. But we have to imagine it and we have to carry through with it. And so for me, when I think about this Democratic National Convention, I think about the importance of a Joe Biden presidency, not because I'm in love with him as a candidate, but because I know that he is the closest thing that we have, him along with Kamala Harris, to producing a safer America, an America that will reprioritize its spending, and ultimately an America that will be healthier because the money that we reallocate from the Pentagon, for example, will be allocated domestically. And via climate change, we will produce an America that will benefit the rest of the world. So, thank you all very much for listening to this episode. And I'll be back next week. <laughs>